just Googled it. Calgary air quality is almost five times worse than Beijing. I think that's where people are willing to go, oh, geez, I want an air, a clean air shelter. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk a Clean Air. Today, looking at the real world problems facing building managers. My name is Dusty Rhodes. Joining us to share some of his extensive experience with buildings is Jesse Bueller, who is very involved in property management in Calgary, Canada, where he is the Director of Property Management with GWL Realty Advisors. Jesse, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. We're also joined by John Holmes, who is Camfield's National Account Manager based in Toronto, Canada, and puts a lot of his success down to constantly questioning the status quo. John, does that questioning make you popular in the office? It depends on the questioning. But thank you. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> Jesse, let me start off uh, with you. Can you tell us more about the kind of buildings you manage? Because you manage a lot. Uh, is it all residential? Is it all uh, business? Is it uh, industrial? What kind of buildings? So our portfolio in Calgary is split between a couple different directors, um, but in our overall portfolio, we have a mix of industrial, office, and retail. And the portfolio that I take care of currently is is all AAA office properties downtown. Uh, but my experience is I have done a residential strata, which is a condo owner occupied, uh, rental residential rental and then a wide range of commercial as well. So on the building side of things then, Jesse, what are the kind of the problems that you have to deal with? What's the most difficult thing that's facing a building manager like yourself today? Uh, number one thing, honestly, is operating costs. If I had to rank it, and it really depends on what kind of property you're managing, but really what it comes down to is money. And with aging properties and the amount of capital that you need to put in to keep it up to a quote-unquote status quo, it varies quite a bit and it is challenging. So number one thing is operating costs. John, you've got a great view on filters, uh, particularly ones from Camfill, because they are a little bit more expensive, but you've got a, a great way of explaining how they're actually more economical. How is that? Well, I mean, it's sticker price. They are traditionally the, the premium path over your you know, alternatives, we'll say. But really, if you're looking at the total cost or longevity, because typically filters are changed you know, pre-filters every three months, finals are once a year or every two years. Uh, you know, folks can really take a, a 10,000 foot view and look at the total spend over a two year period and also look at the energy piece because frankly, air filters are pretty close to lighting when it comes to the energy impact. Um, you know, you'll, you'll certainly find a lot, uh, a lot of cost saving opportunities there. So Jesse, would you find that to be true? It, yeah, it's actually something that John and I have talked about a lot over the last number of years is the whole project cost rather than the individual like filter for filter a cam fill filter is um it is more expensive but when you start looking at pre-filter you don't need a pre-filter you don't need other pieces but it's also is that i'm the son of an entrepreneur so it's every time you touch something it costs you money and is that the best highest best use of your time and so i'm thinking operators um in Canada, the average age of an operator is in their 50s. And there isn't a massive amount of people coming into the operations world. So looking at using our time better, it really includes how many times you can touch that filter. And on a cam fill filter, the, the payoff time, the payoff period gets around the 11 or 12 month period where you've already changed out the other filters three times and you haven't done these. And it, it's very interesting on that because, again, it's every time an operator touches it, it's an hour of his time or it's a half hour of his time. And it costs a certain amount of money to employ those people. 
and they had their highest, best use of their time could be going and talking to a tenant and making sure that they're comfortable. So uh, the labor piece, I think, is really important. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jesse, but people have more stuff to do, less people to do it. So I think quantifying the amount of labor reallocation, not labor savings, because you're still paying those humans to work in the building. Now you can do more for the same labor buck. And that's actually how John and I first started getting you know, like into this conversation like quite a number of years ago was, again, I'm the son of an entrepreneur. We, quant- we take this number back and I say, how much am I paying this person? But then how much does a company does it cost the company with them a bonus and the benefits and all of these other pieces of the real cost? And if I can save, I think even John and I, we looked at it and said, all right, objectively, we could probably save about 200 hours, labor hours a year. And a lot of the challenges around CamFill actually is the I don't believe that I can't use a pre-filter and it's, I've been doing it this way for 25 years. Why would I change? And around that is, Hey, who has an extra, I don't know, three or four hours a week. Not one team that we talked to had more three or four or five hours extra a week. And they said, well, can't make 25 hours in a day, but I can make you more efficient and we can shave a minute or two or five or 10 off a whole bunch of different tasks. And if we're changing one filter every 18 months, and in some cases, every 20 or 24 months, even though the rating is 18 months, but we look at it and say, hey, well, you don't need to change it. The number of hours that we're actually spending changing filters drops, but we maintain a really high level of indoor air quality and people are comfortable. Well, that's the definition of building optimization and efficiency. Well, just to add on that, you know, not only are the filters lasting longer, but they're performing better longer. I think that's when, when, you know, I've been in the industry again, almost the better part of a decade. And I, I get this reaction from folks this visceral reaction, like, oh gosh, we don't want to leave filters in too long. We'll have no airflow. What's going to happen to my equipment? But what they don't understand is that, you know, we're talking about lower average resistance airflow, you know, meaning it's going to take much, much longer to reach that final change out place. And that's really what we're selling. Clean air at the lowest resistance to airflow equals your ESG scope reductions and your, your labor reallocation without compromising on air quality as well. That seems to be my guide to life as I kind of go, well, how much is a plumber going to cost for an hour? <laughs> I value everything in my life. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Listen, <laughs> tell me, uh, Jesse, you're very kind of aware of the quality of indoor air. More so than I would say most building managers probably. What Was there an incident or an event that prompted you to be particularly aware of the quality of indoor air? Yes, we had, an, we had a situation and, and it's actually happened a number of times. But I remember that one of the very first times um, I, I had a phone call from the head of an HR team stating that, that someone had, had to go home because there was quote unquote mold on, on the windows and that we had to go to indoor air quality testing. And we had done a lot of indoor air quality testing at the property that in question. And when we brought, brought in someone to say, look, we want to ad- address this. If there's mold in the space, like this is very serious. So let's go get, start getting this stuff tested. So we started to get it tested. Well, no, it's not mold. I said, all right, well, let's do an indoor air quality test just to make sure. And when they provided the, the, the information, it was really technical. And it wasn't in ways that someone could actually, like a layperson could understand. And what we ended up doing is I asked them to write it 
differently and not change the information or the, the outcome, but understand that, like speak to your listener. And so what we did is, and one of the comments that they put in there was essentially if they're this allergic to mold, that the amount of mold that was outside, airborne mold outside naturally occurring in Calgary is three or four times higher than what was inside. And that's when it started to click to me is speak to your listener, but also put it in relative terms for us. And, and that's really when I started to understand and really start to pay attention to, okay, indoor air. COVID honestly put that everything on steroids where everyone started to learn about it way more. And now the average office manager, facility manager, they know infinitely more about indoor air quality than they did before because, because of the circumstances. And John, the people that you're dealing with, your clients across the country, do, have you noticed them knowing more about indoor air quality and it becoming more prominent in their mind? Absolutely. Air quality is definitely a focus. I think people are kind of tired about talking about COVID, but certainly, you know, I think one of the things to to bring humans back to the office is to let them know, like, by the way, your air quality at the office might just actually be better than your home. So that could be another one of those incentives for some of the folks I've talked to, to, uh, to get people back to the office. We'll talk more about the incentives of getting people back to the office a little bit later because it's quite interesting, actually. But uh, Jesse, tell me about your your day to day when you are maintaining buildings and it comes to uh, air quality. What do you do in your day to day that has to do with air quality? What's your routine? I have some unbelievably great people that I get to work with and they are very knowledgeable and very passionate about making sure that tenants feel good. When our, I, we kind of talk about when our phones are quiet and our, when our phones don't ring, it's a great day. When no one talks to us, that we have done our job really, really, really well. And so on a day-to-day basis is understanding what's happening outside. Right now, we, we're experiencing some forest fires in northern Alberta and the wind switched last night. And uh, yesterday, it, it was... 27 degrees Celsius and blue sky and sunshine. And today we can't see the sky. I had four phone calls this morning from tenants just this morning saying that, what are we going to be doing about the, the air quality inside? And it was a really good opportunity for us to have that conversation again, saying, well, we reduce our outside uh, air intake. We push things through MERV 13 filters. It's just, again, another conversation. And when I said, we actually haven't changed anything since COVID. So we're actually under the same protocol. The minute we said that, everyone said, okay. So if you'd like to go home, you can go home. I can almost guarantee that the air in that building is going to be cleaner than the air in their home. Not one of the tenants sent their employees home. That's amazing uh, that the tenants are, are asking about that. Do you find then that when you are leasing out offices, that you actually include the quality of the air in the building as part of yourself? I'd love to say that it comes up in conversation, but it doesn't. It comes down to the people who sign a lease tend to be very focused on how much is this going to cost me, full stop. Once we start to have people move in and the people who actually occupy the space full time, those are the people that want to have the conversation about or will be more aware of, hey, it kind of stinks in here or, it, you know, there is... Uh, you know, it's dusty or it's, it, it, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel good. It, it, it is kind of a challenging time because the people that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, 
don't sign the lease. The people, they're the CFOs and the CEOs and the presidents. Um, whereas the office managers and the people, the worker bees like me or like John who sit in a room or sit in an office who experience that space is that John doesn't negotiate the lease that he's for the office space that they have, but he's the one that experiences the space. So, Jesse, we're talking about people uh, in the office and at home. Do you, do you, just from your own colloquial experience, do you think that people are seeing a difference in their own head between the air quality that they have at home, where they probably don't have uh, HVAC uh, filters, and the air quality at work, where they uh, probably expect it? Because they certainly expect it on airplanes these days. All the negatives that came with COVID, which were massive, there were some positive things. Um, and I think the understanding of indoor air quality, I think that's the, I do think that it's the next thing to start to become top of mind. You know, why isn't it top of mind? Because it's, you can't see it. it. What's becoming popular in residential, uh, residential spaces, like at your home is water filtration because it's clean and you can see if it's clean, you can see if it's not, it smells weird. If it doesn't, it's like, it tastes different when it's filtered water. Clean air or indoor air quality in your home could be one of the next um, things that people start to actually pay attention to. Seeing as we're talking about comparisons with water and air, and it's a brilliant, brilliant comparison, uh, water is something that we, you know, we're used to paying for in many parts of the world. Do you think, and this is just a hypothetical question, that air is something that could, or clean air is something that could be sold in the future? Honestly, I, I think it would be a very far way off. But some experience or, I mean, reading some reports and looking at documentation from some of our industry associations and looking at some of the just really interesting maps that, get, that got sent out during COVID around some of the areas in mainland China, and looking at the, the difference in smog. And you can actually see on aerial maps from satellites that it's pre-pandemic, during pandemic and post-pandemic that you can see air, there was, they saw uh, outside air quality differences in LA and in New York. I think it's as the younger generation starts to come into the workforce, I do think that this will be more top of mind. Uh, certifications like fit well or well where BOMA is kind of how you run a building, the BOMA certifications, LEED is how the building is built and how sustainable it is, but fit well and well. Those, these certifications are around how tenants feel in a space and how they interact as humans in that space. And we make an assumption that you're going to have, we're going to have clean water in a building and that, hey, if you want to a filtration system put into your space. We can install one and it's a, a cost of uh, whatever the cost is. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in time. But I, I don't think it's outside the question. I just think the horizon is probably in the 20 or 30 years spot, not in the two or three year spot. You know, if I just could add to that, I, I completely agree with Jesse. I bet you on days like today where, I, and I just, I just Googled it, you know, Calgary air quality is almost five times worse than Beijing. You know, so those kind of days, I think that's where people are willing to go, oh, geez, you know, I want way better air quality. I want an air, a clean air shelter of sorts. And I'm willing to pay for that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's not beyond the realms of possibility, but I think Jesse is right. I think it's it's decades away, but it's definitely within the realms of possibility. Now, one set group of people who love getting in on all this kind of stuff, John, are regulators, local city authorities, all that kind of stuff, you know, and uh, the quality of air is, is very important to them. Uh, have you noticed, John, uh, across Canada, a shift towards required testing and, and any kind of air quality minimums in Canada? Not as of yet, but I know that there's there's going to be new regulations coming out from ASHRAE. I'm I'm not completely well versed in it as of yet, um, so I know there will be some changes coming down the pipe that we're all gonna have to to be you know well versed in. Um, but right now, there's no air quality police, for lack of a better term. But no, certainly my experiences and Jesse can speak to it better. That traditionally property management folks are you know having to test the air quality on an annual basis, if I'm not mistaken, and and provide that report to their tenants. I'm assuming to meet things like well, fit well, boma best, these kind of uh, things. Maybe the lease. Je- Jesse, correct me if I'm wrong. Am I? It's largely an industry best practice. To be honest with you, is that I I don't actually remember ever reading any sort of qualifications around indoor air quality in a lease outside specific leases. Uh, so federal government. Uh, and Dusty, as you're saying, in the regulators, uh, I know in Alberta specifically, workers, uh, the Workers' Compensation Board, they have it in a union agreement. And then trying to marry those two things and saying, like, we're not bound by your union agreement. But even as first class managers, it's an industry best practice to try and keep that indoor air quality well, the humidity at a, at a very comfortable level. So in a contractual document, from recent memory, I've never actually seen indoor air quality has to be at this level. But I also think largely because people don't even know what good air, indoor air quality is. I don't think that they could say, this is, this is what the measurement of good looks like. Mm-hmm. That's such a great point because there, there are standards for the EPA. So outdoor air, there are thresholds right? Of PM 2.5 and, and so on and so forth. But you're right. There's no quote unquote standard today for indoor air quality, which is, which is interesting. Unless, you know, industrial hygienists at a factory for certain levels of metal and so on. Jesse, I love listening to you because you're listening almost at the, at the, at the coal face of your like of running buildings and you've got real human beings who are coming in. You've got all these concerns about energy and air and water and plumbing and, and maintenance and, and structural integrity and all of these things. And I love how you say that it's important to you that the tenants feel happy because happy tenants are just going to stay there. And, and that just makes life easy for, for everybody. Uh, and I'm sure that you're in touch with John a lot. And John's going, hey, hey, the latest in air quality is this. And the latest in air quality is that. We've got this brilliant new product here. And, this, and you're learning from him all the time. But actually, what I'm wondering, John, this is actually a question from you. Do you ever learn anything from Jesse? Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things I learned, because you know, I've been with the company for the better part of a decade. And, you know, we learn on day one that really are what we're known for is higher quality at the lowest carbon footprint or lowest energy use. And that's great. But just for the the listeners, uh, Alberta is an oil and gas slash energy province. Saving energy hasn't traditionally been, you know, the number one priority. Uh, <laughs> of course, things change with, you know, the carbon goals, carbon reduction goals and so on. But one of the interesting things I found, I learned from Jesse was while the energy component was interesting, it was more that if, wait a second, if your air filter, Mr. Camfield guy, 
runs at a lower resistance to airflow, my fan doesn't have to work as hard. So therefore, theoretically, it's going to last X amount longer. So then my CapEx to replace that piece of equipment in, say, a, a, an aged building down the road is significantly delayed. Uh, so that was an interesting uh, win, we'll say, that I, I learned from Jesse for sure. Jesse, what, what do you reckon with that? Is this helping with sustainability? Yeah. Uh, well, John's points are definitely accurate. And it is stuff that we've talked about over the years is just reducing runtime on equipment, which just uh, there's a certain amount of runtime that you have to do before you rebuild or whether you have to replace. But there's also another piece, too, where John and I have talked about this quite a bit. And we've talked about a number of different things. Part of my role in the company right now is looking at sustainability uh, and looking at as many other larger organizations in Canada and across the world have done is that we have certain GHG reduction goals. We have a, a zero by 2050 goal, so carbon neutral by 2050. And when we even start to think it's, it, there is no silver bullet. It's a little bit of a brag, but you know what? Our properties are run really, really well. The low hanging fruit is largely gone. We have unbelievable teams that we work with. And in order for us to really reach that goal, we're going to have to shave a whole bunch or we're going to have to shave a little bit of a whole bunch of different areas. And one of the things is that where, where John and I talked about a number of years ago, even before these carbon neutrality goals were stated, was that the number of filters going into a landfill, that comes into that whole project cost that we were talking about before, is that that payoff period for a camfill filter, which is a little bit, it is more expensive but also looking at the number of filters and the actual physical amount of waste going into a landfill, going with a traditional system versus a camfill system, it's 20% or 25% rather than 100%. Like it's, it, it's something that there's so many different small pieces that add up to bigger pieces. If I could just add to that too, um, you know, what I find quite interesting is in Europe, we've, we've done LCAs or life cycle analysis of the life cycle of a filter. What is the carbon footprint of sourcing raw materials, manufacturing, shipping to our, our facility, then shipping to our customer. And then the final life of, you know, potentially, you know, landfill, um, by in, in Jesse's case where we eliminated pre-filters, I think it was around 80 to 90% waste reduction. However, that's also that much more reduction of transport uh, to and from the facility as well, which is that's ESG scope three right there. You know, it's kind of funny because I, I really am a ticket price kind of a guy. I'll just say, how much is it? Da, da, whatever, like, you know, but you guys have like opened my mind and you're making me think a lot differently. Now, not not just about filters, but about anything, you know, kind of, you know, maybe when I'm when I'm doing my shopping at the store at the weekend or something, <laughs> I might be looking at uh, things in, in, in a different way. But I, I do like the way you say that there's, there's all of these other tiny little things that affect people's jobs or the way things are done or the, our effect on the planet and all that kind of stuff. So it's, you're, you're making me think a lot, which kind of leads me on, actually, to the Chief Ergonomics Officer campaign that is running in Canfield at the moment. And it's all about kind of getting people within companies to kind of stand up and to do something about air quality or at least to find out more about uh, air quality. Uh, Jesse, you're you're not involved with Canfield. You're not part of this campaign at all. Um 
I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are aware that air is a problem and we're loving what you are saying and the point of views that you are coming up with. What do you think is a good next stage for somebody listening to this podcast to go from listening to doing something? Honestly, it's education. Uh, and, and education in relative terms. When you're within an industry, a lot of jargon gets thrown around and there's acronyms and there's things that are just common sense for someone that lives in that world where someone who doesn't, it, it means absolutely nothing. And I think that the first and probably the biggest step is understanding what does good air look like? What does it smell like? And what is the difference that it can make in your life on a health? Like, how does it affect me on a, on a health side, on, a, on a, both mental health and physical health? What does that do? And if it's the number of particles per or microns per whatever, but putting those in term, relative terms to help understand, I equate it to our waste reduction goals. We go in and, and try and reduce the amount of, of waste that we're putting into a landfill. And so many times it says we've taken this amount out of landfill, which is the equivalent of taking 12 cars off the road or, you know, saving 8,000 trees to start to think about trying to find a way to make how we can relate clean air to terms that people understand just on a day-to-day -day basis. That I think is the first step to make it relevant to the everyday person. That's your first step. That's what you have to do. After that, then, then you can start to actually dive into it. John, you'd be happy to hear that I'm going to leave the, uh, the last word to you today because I loved, as I said at the beginning of our podcast, uh, what you say in your bio, uh, that a lot of your success is down to questioning the status quo. After everything that we've heard in this short podcast today, what questions do you think that our listeners should be thinking about? Well, I think I'll, I'll preface that with a statement, and that is, you know, growth and comfort cannot coexist. So if we're going to evolve and, and constantly push the envelope in various industries and companies, we have to look at things differently. And, you know, I know filters aren't glamorous. They're not as cool or flashy, pardon the pun, as LEDs. But, you know, with, with the objective being net zero, not net 99, how can you afford not to consider, you know, sustainable high performance air filtration as part of that plan? So just something to think about. John Holmes and Jesse Bueller, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about our topic or about John or Jesse, just follow the links in the show notes. You'll find those in the description of this podcast on your phone or whatever device you're listening to us on. If you'd like to find out more about the Chief Ergonomics Officer program, just go to chiefergonomicsofficer.com where you can learn more and join the initiative. There's a LinkedIn group as well, which you're welcome to join us on also. Links for both of those in the show notes in the description area, as I said, of the podcast on your podcast player. Do join us next time as we keep you up to date with the latest issues in our Let's Talk Clean Air podcast. To get it automatically, just click the follow button on your player right now. Until then, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thank you for listening.